I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. We already read a portion of this psalm earlier in our service for uh, the scripture leading up to our confession of sin, but now we'll be looking at it in its entirety. Psalm 32, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. A mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to your word and we're thankful that you have given it to us. We thank you for your servant David. We thank you that in your providence you, through the work of the Holy Spirit, gave him these words to write, that you caused them to be written in such a way that they are pleasing in your sight, that they are true and right and good, and that you have preserved this so that we can actually read it here today. Fill us with an understanding of it. Help us to see what we need to see. Help us to learn what we need to learn. And through it all, Father, we pray that you would help us to see your grace and your mercy to us as you cover us with the forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how well uh, you think that the people of our culture, of our society, uh, know what sin is. If you uh, left here today and drove downtown Rochester or Owatonna or Stewartville or Pine Island or even Minneapolis and uh, you stopped some folks as they were going into the store, uh, maybe to a gas station, just walking on the sidewalk and you asked them, uh, uh, tell me what is sin? What do you think that they would say to you? If they would say anything to you at all, what do you think that they would say to you? Now, I would say that Living where we do in this uh, part of the country, uh, it seems like people still have some kind of sense of right and wrong. So there would probably be that kind of a sense that would come out in what they would say. But I would also say to you that typically uh, today we tend to trivialize the idea of sin. I mean, just think about how we even joke about it sometimes. We'll have some piece of food or something that we're enjoying and we're saying, this is so good it should be sinful. 
I even actually Googled that this past week, and the first thing that came up was an advertisement for the magazine Delish, which was for uh, food and all kinds of different things, that it's so good that it ought to be called sinful. The second thing that popped up was an Instagram page by someone called Pure Gluttony, uh, full of recipes and restaurants that are things that we should go. Things that are so good, they're so tasty, they're, they're so delicious, they should be sinful. And if we don't trivialize sin in that way, often people think of sin as only the big things. You know, murder and adultery and uh, abusing a child and, and acts of terror. Those things are sin. That's what we would call sin. The Bible actually gives us a much broader and a much deeper understanding of what sin is. So I'd ask you as we dig into Psalm 32 today, how important do you think it is for people to have a biblical understanding of sin? How important is is it for God's people to have a biblical understanding of what sin truly is? David here, the author of Psalm 32, seemed to think that it was pretty important. We even have perhaps what you know is a famous story of St. Augustine, uh, who uh, uh, took Psalm 32 while he was on his deathbed and asked for it to be inscribed on the wall next to his deathbed so that he could be reflecting on Psalm 32 as he was preparing to meet his maker. And at the bottom of the inscription, he had a Latin phrase written as well that said, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. The beginning of knowledge is to understand what sin is and the fact that we are sinners. As we've been studying through the book of 2 Samuel through this last school year, we've seen plenty of examples of how David in the Bible was greatly acquainted with sin. He was acquainted with his own sin, his personal sin, the effects of it, the consequences of it. He was also acquainted with the sins of the nation, the nation of Israel, the effects and consequences of their sin. And David, throughout, we saw in 2 Samuel, David seemed to believe that understanding sin from God's perspective was not just something that was important, but it was something that was absolutely necessary for the people of God. And just as important was learning and understanding what needs to be done about sin. David wrote this psalm, Psalm 32. It's considered one of the seven penitential psalms in the Bible. Maybe second in familiarity only uh, to Psalm 51 that was also written by David as a psalm of repentance and confession of sin. For Psalm 32, we don't know exactly when David wrote it. We don't know exactly the occasion of his writing it. Perhaps, some believe, perhaps it was written uh, as he was reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, just as Psalm 51 was as well. But we know that Regardless of whether it was that particular episode of sin in David's life or some other, David had plenty of opportunities to reflect on his own sin and that of his people. So let's look and see what David teaches us about sin from Psalm 32. We're going to look and see, first of all, why we need to deal with sin. Secondly, how we need to deal with sin. And then lastly, the fruit that comes after we deal with our sin. Now, before we jump into those three things in the passage today, just a quick uh, word of aside. At the beginning of of Psalm 32, we see that that there's this term, a mascal of David. 
You may be wondering what that is. Well, we actually don't know precisely what that means. Uh, the term has been lost in, in history. Some scholars believe that it may have been some kind of a technical term to alert the people of God that this was a, 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 this was a specific psalm that was to be meditated on, that it was to be a psalm of, uh, of teaching and of learning from. Some other scholars believe that perhaps it was a musical term, that it was... Uh, uh, telling the people of God as they came to this psalm in the Psalter, as they would sing in worship to the Lord, that they were to sing in a particular way. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that it was a maskil of David. And what do we see that David tells us about the reason why we need to deal with our sin? Well, you can see in verses 1 and 2, David gives us an understanding of what sin is. That's what we need to understand. If we're going to understand the, the, the reason why we need to deal with it, we need to know what sin is. And in verses 1 and 2, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Three different words that David uses, three different words in the Hebrew. They're used synonymously throughout the Old Testament for the idea of sin, but they have different nuances. And as we understand the nuances of these three different words, it helps us to understand what sin is. The first word is the word that we have translated transgression. It means to rebel or to go against, to revolt to do wrong, it's the sense of rebelling against God. Rebelling against the Creator and His authority. You may know the other famous example of this. Uh, also, St. Augustine in his Confessions tells the story of when he was a young boy and how he would steal pears from one of his neighbor's vineyard. And once when they were caught, he was asked why they would steal the pears. Are they in need? Do they have need for food? And it wasn't that. It was simply because they had been told not to do it. We know something of that, don't we? Don't we know something of that mindset in our hearts? Somebody tells you not to do something. There's part of you that wants to do it all the more. To go against that Authority, or whatever it might be that's told you not to do something. That's the sense here of this word of transgression. To rebel, to go against God as our authority. David uses a second word here in the word sin. That's the word that we often have translated in the New Testament as missing the mark. Not achieving the standard. Falling short of God's glory. It's to go off of the path. And, and there's the sense that there is a path, that there is a standard, that God is not only a God and the creator of the universe, but he has given us a standard. He has given us a path on which the feet of God's people are to walk. And part of what sin is, is when we go off that path, when we fall short of his standard, when we fall short of what God has given us for how we are supposed to live. David uses a third word. It's the word sin. There the word is, has the sense of rebellion against God. Uh, rebellion against uh, the, 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 the very sense of what God has called us to be as His people. There's a sense of twisting from within. An inward moral corruption. A twisting of the heart. This is 
is what sin is. It is, it is rebellion against God Himself. It is, it is rebellion against the Word of God, the standard of God. It is falling short, short of that standard. It is a twisting of our hearts. The Westminster Shorter Catechism also helps us to understand what sin is. The question, question 14 of the Shorter Catechism says, what is sin? And that's a pretty simple question. What is sin? Easy to understand. The answer, perhaps not so much. The answer is this. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now that sounds pretty convoluted. That sounds a little harder to understand. But I don't think it is if we just pull it apart and reflect on it for a second. Sin is any want of conformity to the law of God. Now what does that mean? If you're in want of something, it means you're lacking it. You don't have it. And this is saying part of what sin is, is not having conformity to God's word. Not doing what it says. Not, not being in conformity with what God's word says. Not doing what it says. But it goes on in the question to say, it's also a transgression of the law of God. It's not only that we don't do what it tells us to do, we actually transgress it. We go against it. We rebel against it. We do what it says that we shouldn't do. So here's what sin is. It's not doing what God's Word says that we should do. And it's also doing what God's Word says that we shouldn't do. <coughs> now, as we start to see what sin is, we also see that David helps us to understand what sin does to us. You can see him confessing that in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. David's giving us a picture of what unconfessed, unrepentant sin can make us feel like in our lives. It can make us feel empty and hollow and discontent and unsettled and distressed. That we would groan from our very innards. The word there, groan, means a, a, a deep deep cry of distress. It can actually be used for the roar of a lion. Unrepentant sin, David goes on in verse 4, says, he says, unrepentant sin can make us feel the heavy and unrelenting hand of the Lord upon us. The end of verse 4, he says, unrepentant sin can make us feel as if we have no strength physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. You get this picture in verses 3 and 4 of an unhappy and even dangerous picture. Under the weight of guilt, under the weight of God's hand against us, a, a, a weakness in our spiritual life, a disconnectedness, a, a disjointedness in our relationship with our Father in heaven. This is what sin is and this is what unrepentant sin does to us. And so as we reflect on that, we start to understand in deeper and deeper ways why we need help. As we see what our sin is, as we see what unconfessed sin can do to us, we start to realize that we need help from outside of ourselves. That's the picture that David's giving us in verses 1 through 5. This is a man who was recognizing that he couldn't live with unconfessed and unrepentant sin. This is a man that understood that not only is it not healthy and comfortable to live in a state of unconfessed sin, but it's unsustainable. 
living in a state of unconfessed sin against his father is not how David knew he was created to be. We need what David understood that he needed in verse 1. We need a covering. We need a covering. So the question is, how do we get that covering? How do we get the covering that we need? Well, what did David do? Go back into Psalm 32 and look at verse 5. We see what David did. I acknowledged my sin to you, he says. You see what David did? He got the right standard. David understood and acknowledged his sin. And he didn't just confess it and acknowledge it to himself or to others. Where did he go to acknowledge it? He acknowledged it to the Lord. Why did David confess his sin to the Lord? It's because David knew that it was against God that he had sinned. It was against God's standard that he had fallen short. David confessed this in Psalm 51 as well. He said, against you, speaking to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understood that it was God's standard that had been broken. It was God's standard that had been violated. It was God's standard that had been departed from. So he got the right standard. The same is true for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't just rely on the voice of public opinion. What others think is right or wrong. What other people, whatever the culture, whatever the voice of public opinion is about right and wrong, that changes and it changes so often. You think about some of the things we've been experiencing in our culture even recently. How, uh, how a couple hundred years ago people were celebrating Civil War heroes. But today those monuments are being brought down because the voice of public opinion has changed. Or even think about my own upbringing. Uh, uh, and how it wasn't uncommon for people, uh, not myself perhaps, but I saw people getting spanked in school by the teacher. Paddled. Can you imagine that happening today? Think about all the things that at some point had been accepted and thought of as being right and good and yet now are criminalized. We can't rely on the voice of public opinion because it changes so frequently. But we also can't simply rely on our own conscience. We can't just rely on our own judgment, our own standard for what we think is right and wrong. Our conscience is part of our fallen self. And our conscience can be wrong. We need an objective standard. We need something that is outside of ourselves. Something that transcends the particular cultures and societies of this world. World, And this is what we have. It is the Word of God. It doesn't matter if everybody around us and the culture around us says that what we're doing or thinking is okay. It doesn't even matter if we think it's okay and our conscience isn't bothering us about it. If God's Word, if God's standard says that it's wrong, it's wrong. So the first thing that we need to do in order to deal with our sin is to recognize that all of our sin is first and foremost against the Lord and against His standard. We need to stop trying to justify our wrongdoing and our sin by using some other standard than the Word of God. And as we go to the right standard and as we evaluate ourselves based on the right standard, we also recognize that we need to go to the right source to get the forgiveness that we need. 
That's what David did in verses 5 and 6. I acknowledge my sin to you, he said. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Where did David go to get the forgiveness that he needed? He went to the Lord. He offered his prayer to the Lord. David knew that he couldn't deal with his sin by himself. He couldn't cover his iniquity in a way that would be sufficient. He didn't have the power to provide the covering that he needed. He couldn't punish himself enough. He couldn't just try to be a better person. He couldn't come up with some kind of penance that he could do where he would do more good things than bad things. David understood he needed to go to the only place where his sin could be taken care of and he could be covered. And that's to the Lord. He did that because he knew that the Lord was the only one who could cover him and the only one who could make the declaration that David needed to hear. Did you notice what happened after David went to the Lord? He recognized that he had sinned against the Lord, that it was God's standard that had been broken, and so he went to the source that could issue the forgiveness, which was the Lord. He recognized the right standard. He recognized the source he needed to go to. And as he confessed his sins, what happened at the end of verse 5? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And notice the language of how David continues in verses 6 and 7 as he reflects on that wonderful truth that David got the forgiveness of his sins. Therefore, he says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the language of the Lord taking David in, of covering David, of preserving David, of protecting David. This is something that can only come from one source, and that is the Lord God Almighty. I want you to notice here that there's more than just a picture or language of God covering over David's sin. There is language here of a declaration that is being made about David's status before the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Verse 10. The steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Who? O righteous. And shout for joy. Who? All you upright in heart. Those are words of declaration. Those are words of status that are being made. Godly. Those who are surrounded with the steadfast love of the Lord. The the chesed of the Lord. God's steadfast covenant loving kindness to His people. He looks at His people when they have confessed their sins and He calls them righteous. He calls them upright. Those who turn to the Lord. Those who repent of their sins. Those who confess to the Lord their sins are declared righteous. They are declared godly. They are declared upright. They are declared as those who have God's steadfast love surrounding them. Now, lest you think that I'm making more of this than what's actually in the text. Lest you think that this declaration aspect of their being declared righteous in God's sight... 
that I'm making too much of that, I want you to understand this wonderful truth. Psalm 32 is quoted in the New Testament. Do you know where? It's in the book of Romans, where Paul is making his argument about how we are declared righteous in God's sight through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in uh, Romans chapter 4 as Paul is making this argument. He goes to two different places in the Old Testament to prove his truth of what he's saying. Romans chapter 4 beginning in verse, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven by whose, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What incredible words of all the places that Paul could have gone to prove the fact that God justifies us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes to Psalm 32 and he references what David is saying here. He uses these two Old Testament examples to show how God's people are declared righteous and justified by faith in Christ. So as God's people, when you acknowledge your sin to the Lord, when you stop trying to cover it up yourself, but confess your sins to the Lord, then the Lord forgives you of your sins and He covers you with His righteousness. And He declares that you're forgiven. He declares that you are righteous. He declares that you are upright and godly because now you are in Christ. That's how we get true forgiveness. We use the right standard. We go to the right source. And then we get the ultimate declaration and a covering that we could never provide for ourselves. Lastly, I want you to see that there is fruit, there are results that are to come from those who have received this forgiveness and covering. You can see it, first of all, at the beginning of the psalm in, in verses 1 and 2. What does David say is the status of those who have had their sins forgiven? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word there that's translated blessed could also be translated happiness or happy. What David is saying here is more than just that those who have had their sins forgiven and who have been declared righteous in God's sight, it's more than that it's more than that they're just not sad. There is a there is a sense here in the word that that David uses for blessed or happy a sense of deep peace and joy and contentment and blessing from the Lord. That that comes to us as a result of confessing our sins to the Lord, of being repentant, of hearing the reality that we have been covered by the Lord Himself. That puts us into a state of blessing, a state of happiness. Uh, a number of years ago, many years ago, 
I was at I was in a, in a meeting with a number of other elders and an individual who was contemplating a, a specific sin. And this this person told us that they they were living life and not feeling fulfilled, not feeling happy, not feeling content, and they were convinced that if they would just go forward with this act that they were going to do, that they would get happiness and contentment and peace. And we had to sit across the table from that person and tell them, God will not bless you and let you be happy in your sin. So maybe temporarily that will be the case, but not ultimately, not completely and not finally. Ultimately, we didn't convince the person. But what we told them was true. There is no ultimate blessing and happiness in sin. Even if we get it in some temporary way, blessing and happiness will not accompany our sin indefinitely. So how about for us, brothers and sisters in Christ? The Bible doesn't tell us blessed is the one who sins. It says, it doesn't say blessed is the one who lives in unconfessed sin. When we live that way, when we live in unconfessed sin, then we can be assured that there will be no ultimate blessing and happiness from the Lord. I want you to reflect on your marriage, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your friends. As you see tension there, as you, as, as you see uh, uh, dysfunctionality there, as you see unhappiness, uh, as you see a lack of blessing in those relationships, could it be because of sin? Could it be because of unconfessed sin? Could it be because of an unwillingness to ask for forgiveness when it needs to be asked for or to grant it when it is asked for? And I also want you to be thinking about ways that you try to get away with doing, rather than confession of your sin, getting away with doing what might be called penance or trying to make up for your sin by yourself. Rather than confessing your sin and asking for forgiveness, maybe it's punishing yourself physically or emotionally, psychologically. Maybe it's the opposite of that. Maybe it's that you try to be on your best behavior and do lots of good things and try to outweigh the sin that needs to be confessed. But we need to know that what David tells us here is what comes, what the, the blessing comes when those uh, when we confess our sins. We won't get the the Lord's ultimate blessing and peace and happiness until sin is confessed and repented of, and we receive the forgiveness that we need. A second fruit that I think we can pull out of Psalm 32 is that God's people, once they receive God's forgiveness, once they hear that declaration of being righteous in God's sight, we ought to respond with a wise, trusting, countercultural obedience. I want you to go back to Psalm 32 and look at verse 8. And as we come to verse 8, I want you to notice that there's a change that takes place. You can see it a little easier in the Hebrew with the tenses and the, 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 of the verbs and the way that the, the language is constructed. But even, even here you can see there's a change here. This is not David speaking anymore. This is the Lord speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with, a, with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here we see another result of what happens after we've confessed our sins to the Lord and received His covering over us. As we hear His declaration of us being righteous in His sight, in response, God's people are to live wise, trusting, and countercultural, obedient lives. You can see this call to wisdom here in verses 8 and 9. He says, the Lord says, I will instruct you. The Hebrew there is to give instruction and insight for the purpose of making somebody wise. The Lord says, I will teach you. That means to show us the right way, to show us the path, to show us the path that we should walk on. The Lord says, I will counsel you. That is the sense of imparting sound advice and wisdom and understanding. And then he uses this illustration in verse 9 to say, Don't be like the horse or the mule that has no understanding, that has no wisdom, that simply has to be led by others. So brothers and sisters in Christ, where does this kind of wisdom come from? There's only one source and it's this, it's the Word of God. What evidence is there in your life that shows that you are seeking to grow in wisdom by pouring yourself into the Word of God? What evidence is there in your life that shows that you believe that you need to become uh, more and more wise in your Christian faith and that the way that you do that is to put yourself under the Word of God? What evidence in your life shows that you actually believe that that's true? It's not just growing in wisdom. It's also growing in a trust. We see in verse 10, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds who? The one who trusts in the Lord. In the context here of Psalm 32, to trust in the Lord means to trust what the Lord says is true about you. Some of us have a really hard time believing and trusting that the Lord really sees us as forgiven. That He really sees us as righteous and upright. Some of us have a hard time believing and trusting that the Lord's steadfast love really surrounds us. Some of us have a hard time believing and trusting what the Lord says is true about what He will be doing over His people in Zephaniah chapter 3. There He says, I will rejoice over you with gladness. I will exult over you with loud singing. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that the Creator of the universe exalts over you with loud singing? rejoices over you with gladness. Some of us are more like the younger brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son that once we come to a realization of our sin, we think, well, I'll just go back to God and see if He'll accept me as a servant. Not remembering that we're His child. And if we are a child of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been covered by Jesus. We have had His righteousness credited to us. We are declared righteous in God's sight. And we need to trust what God says about us in His Word. We need to trust what God says about us more than how we feel at times. We need to trust what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. God who did not spare His own Son but gave gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do you trust that that is true? Responding 
to God's forgiveness for us not only means growing in wisdom and growing in trust in what God says about us, but it is also growing in a countercultural obedience. Back in verse 10, you see this contrast. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. He gives us this contrast. The wicked versus those who are surrounded by God's steadfast love. Those who are trusting in Him. And we see that contrast throughout the Word of God. God's people are to be different. That was the picture that Israel was supposed to be throughout the Old Testament. They were to come out and to be separate from the pagan nations around them. We read in the Scriptures about God's people as being sojourners, as aliens in this world. This is not our home. We read often the sense that God's people are to be living in this world, but not of this world. We hear Paul's words in Romans that say, we ought not to be conformed to this world, but transformed. For those who are God's people, those who have tasted of God's forgiveness and grace, it should mean that we are different in this world. Countercultural. Our lives should be different. How we view the world should be different. How we think about what's happening around us should be different. Our co-workers, our family, our friends, our fellow students, our bosses, those that, would, that take care of us in restaurants and in stores, they ought to notice that there is something different about us. Something different about how we talk and how we act and how we treat others. So I ask you this question. What are the ways that your life looks too much like the world? Like that of the wicked. God calls you to a counter-cultural obedience. One final fruit that comes from those who have experienced the forgiveness of the Lord. It's in verse 11. How fitting that Paul ends this psalm with these words. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What is that a picture of? It is a picture of God's people being so overwhelmed with the forgiveness and covering of Christ's righteousness over them that they are simply moved to worship the Lord. That they have a gladness in the Lord. That there's a rejoicing in the Lord. That there's a shouting for joy to the Lord. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one gets at this. What is the chief end of man? What is our ultimate? What is our highest purpose in life? It is to glorify and enjoy the Lord forever. All of our lives should be worship. It should be about glorifying the Lord and enjoying the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. And that joy should transcend any circumstance in life. So as we finish, let me just ask you this question. Have you lost a sense of worship, of of thanksgiving to the Lord for His forgiving grace to you in the gospel? Does it still move you as you reflect on what God has done for you, as you you hear and remind yourselves of the declarations that are true of you in Christ? Does it move you both in private and in public? 
to a worship that is characterized by joy and gladness. If not, I've suggested a good thing to do would be to go back to the beginning of verse of chapter uh, Psalm 32. Remember what the Lord has done for you in Christ. Remember the covering that He has provided for all of your sins. Remember how He declares you as His righteous, godly, upright children. As He surrounds you with His steadfast love. Let's pray together. Father, can we just come before you and confess, if we're honest, that these wonderful and glorious truths that David has penned for us, they don't drive us to worship like they should. Forgive us. Forgive us for our indifference. Forgive us for our laziness. Forgive us for taking so much for granted. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts and our minds this week, that the sweetness of your forgiveness to us in the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ would rouse our hearts and minds in such a way that we can't help but shout for joy and gladness to you and that others would notice and put their faith in you as well. Help us, Father, to that end, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.